All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege that never gets old, Father, for being able to fellowship together, to gather together as family in a unity that you provided, especially for this congregation, Father. Thank you for keeping us this way and bringing into remembrance all the things we have to be so very grateful for, Father, on a day like today, a day that you ordained from eternity past, Father. We do pray for those in the congregation that can't be here with us this morning this way. We want them to know that we're praying for them and that we're with them in spirit, Father, that we want them back with us as soon as possible. Your will be done, of course. We also pray for those in this world, Father, that are still lost without hope, that before it's too late they be humbled and receive saving faith, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your Son's work on the cross, our Lord and Savior. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 32, uh, Proverbs 17, Wisdom. I want to open up with a nice little letter I got from someone in the congregation. Um, and I want to read it. I had to type it out because it took me about 19 times to read this. I had to decode it. I had to get my secret decoder ring from the Cracker Jack box, put it on there. <laughs> so I'm going to read it, even though this, what I read off my screen is actually what was originally, hopefully I didn't kill it too much, Diane. Anyways, very timely letter. I just want to share it as encouragement to you all. It says, good morning, Pastor Ed. Uh, and just so you know, like it's been a, a, a walloper of a week for a few of us in the congregation. And this was sent in the mail. And Deacon Don comes into my office first thing this morning and says, hey, I got a letter for you. Perfect, perfect timing. And I think it was postmarked on the 25th of September. Just saying. Perfect, perfect timing. Um, good morning, Pastor Ed. I write you filled with gratitude. My dear, precious Lord has set before me all I need to live. Now, this is Diane. She had just moved. He set before me all I need to live. Our Holy Father's gracious gift, which I so don't deserve, of a faith-filled, God-fearing ministry at North Christian Church to enjoy while in His eternal presence, as well as fellowship with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's overwhelming and so does humble me. I'm truly at a loss for words. Thank you, John 6:37. Much love in his presence, Diane. And that was in here. Uh, thank you, Diane, by the way, for your encouragement. It's good to see you here as always. Um, now, to do Diane's card justice, you're probably like, well, what's John 6:37? So let's start by going to John 6:35 for context sake. And we'll read. Uh, this for encouragement before we dig our heels into our primary course of study. 
Good way to kick it off. Amen. John 6:35. John 6:35. Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst." But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And there's her quote, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Isn't that awesome? It's just basically a picture of the Lord grabbing you around and just holding you for himself. And that was... I believe the uh, notion that Diane was getting at. So all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So I hope you appreciate that letter. I know I sure did. And all I can say again is that it was given in perfect timing. God is good. All right, with that said, let's go to our primary course of study, Proverbs 17, verse 5. Proverbs 17, verse 5. reads, Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. So we spent some time on Thursday examining the mind of Christ on the topic of the human flesh. Uh, And in particular, the vector, I like to use that word, and forgive me, it's an old physics word, right? Vector, it just means it has a direction and a momentum or a velocity, right? And so a vector just means you're going in a certain direction with a certain speed, let's let's call it that. That's what a vector means. So in particular, um, the Spirit spent some time with us on this vector that In truth, the human flesh sets out on from birth. We are born depraved. It's the only thing we know. Our north, if you would, our guiding principles, um, they're worldly. And so we go in that direction, the only direction we know. That's how we start even at birth. And so the human flesh only knows one direction. And... It's away from God. The human flesh only knows one direction. We are born that way. And it's away from God. We might say, no, 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 but but this person, I, I know this person. They're a good person. They are by world standards. But they're wretched and depraved by God's. And so all they know how to do is move away from God. You see, to go towards God, you have to be humbled. You have to be brought low. Um, The human condition at birth does not understand that, does not even tolerate it, does not want it. That's why our perfect example, let's face it, is babies. It's called egocentrism. It's all about them, right? And a person who's never saved 
remains, just matures in that type of thinking. So the vector of the human flesh is something that is set at birth. And again, it only knows one direction, and it's away from God. And as we studied out in great detail, the baseline issue with the flesh is that its desire is to dominate. That's that word teshuka in the original language in the Hebrew. To dominate, teshuka. Uh, even the things of God. Even God. That's the baseline issue with the human flesh. Its great desire is to dominate even the things of God, even God. And as we've seen in Holy Scripture, this vector that we're set out on, this vector that unbelievers remain on, it never ends well. For example, we read through Romans 18, or 118 through 32 last Sunday and on Thursday as well, and we pondered the ultimate outcome of that vector. Which, by biblical standards, is really quite graphic. Up here on the board, Romans 132, the New Living Version, reads this way. This is the final verse in that sort of treatise on the vector of the human flesh. And as it accelerates, the longer the human flesh lives, the more accelerates away from God even. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die. Yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. That's the end result. And it never ends well. And so, after reading that and having the Spirit pepper the messages with a little extra this and that, we also considered the underlying issue with this type of advanced unbeliever by considering what the Bible calls hardened hearts. Go to Ephesians 4.17. So we looked at this other way, this other, let's call it a condition, that is indicative of advanced unbelief. It's called a hardened heart. Ephesians 4.17. And so the Spirit brought us here for a reason. We'll get to that in a moment. But we're just looking again at the vector that unbelief is on. Ephesians 4.17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Do you understand? And they have an active role in that. That's what the Spirit had to say. They have an active role in that as well due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality 
greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Greedy to practice. I want to look at that key phrase. Um, we briefly spent a moment on it, I think, on Thursday. But up here on the board, pleonexia in the Greek. Greedy from pleonexia. It means the desire for more things. An example, lusting for a greater number of temporal things that go beyond what God determines is eternally best, beyond his preferred will. The usage, covetousness, avarice, aggression, and then desire for advantage. That's the one that I think we should focus on, this, this greediness to practice every kind of impurity. What is the human flesh enveloped in? What is the currency that it uses? Creature credit. It's always looking to be better. It's always looking to gain that advantage. That's Tashuka, right? To dominate. It's always looking to gain that advantage. And in fact, it's greedy for it. And in, in the most advanced stages, it's really greedy, overtly greedy to the point where it's antagonistic to God. Not just passive, hey, I'd like to get what I want, but antagonistic, even puffed up, even proud. We'll go to great lengths even. Am I making sense? That's the end goal of that vector. Stay on that vector long enough, you have a, a head of steam, and you're puffed up to the nines. You follow? And you're so puffed up, that you're greedy to practice these things. Not just a baseline desire, but now you're greedy for it. That's pleonexia. Okay? Desire for advantage, all the things we just read. Next, we have in our phrase, greedy to practice, up here on the board, ergasia, right? Ergo, the root there is ergo, which is to work, right? But to practice, so it's a derivative refers to working, activity, work, service, trade, business, gains of business, performance, and practice. Greedy to work. So not just, you know, oh, I'd really like to have that. I'm going to go sit on the couch. No, 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 no. This is greedy and to do the work to do it, to get that all kinds of impurity. Do you follow? That's an advanced stage of something unholy. That's what the Spirit's saying. That's what the Bible teaches us. Greedy for practice or to practice. To work for even. Not just, you know, because some people are greedy, but they, they're lazy, right? No, no, no. This is like the culmination of that vector. This is the one who's got all the ducks in a row, knows how to get what they want knows how to manipulate the situation, knows how to work the system, knows how to game the system, all that stuff, all ducks in a row for antagonistic behavior against God. That's the end goal of this person. Again, look at verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So, 
what might we conclude about this person that Paul wrote about? Well, we have the answer to who it is. You know, this is who they are. Uh, that is, unbelievers with, you know, quote, hardened hearts, or what we might call advanced unbelievers. Um, and with these two words that describe what the end product of adding to that fleshly vector that we noted in Romans 1, with these, we can rightly conclude that this type of unbeliever doesn't just reject God. Greedy to practice. They don't just reject God. They are full-on antagonistic to his will. There's a difference, right? It's like someone who says, yeah, I don't really like that person. Versus, you know, I don't like them. I'm going to go attack them. I'm going to make it my business to start attacking them proactively. That's the difference. And some of you have been on the receiving end, and some of you are on the giving end of that thing, sadly. But you know what I'm talking about. So this isn't just an unbeliever that just rejects God but they are full-on antagonistic to his will. They are not satisfied with just minding their own business. Rather, they are actively pursuing an end goal that is offensive to God. They're working for it. They're greedy to work for it. That's the point. They are not simply passive unbelievers. They are active. They are not the, you know, the... Meh, you know that person? Meh. They're not that person. They are the, let's practice, ergasia, right? Let's practice, work, trade, etc. at this greediness. Let's work at this greediness. Let's work at this avarice. Let's work at this dominating others. Let's work at Tashuka. Let's get good at this, in other words. Let's practice it. Let's get good at it. Let's refine our skills. We'll do little, you know, we'll have little group sessions. You know, those usually oftentimes will occur, occur over a, a drink or a meal or something like that. A bunch of unbelievers get together. They're going to conquer the world, that type of thing. Business rooms, conference rooms, you name it, where all this ugliness goes on. You know, let's get really good at this. If we're going to do this thing, let's get really good at it. Let's just go for the gusto. Again, verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So, the purpose, the purpose of setting up this conversation with his audience this way, because we're reading from one of Paul's epistles and he wrote to the church at Ephesus, and so he's developing something. You know, If you know anything about the way Paul writes... He always develops. There's always a logical layout of what he writes. And so he's developing something. He's giving us this side of the equation, so to speak. He's giving us this side, the dark side of things. So there's a purpose of setting up this conversation with his audience so that Paul was able to contrast believers against this advanced unbeliever. So you see this? You see the greediness to practice every kind of impurity? Do you see that person? 
Okay, hold that thought now. Let me make my point to all of you believers. So that was the purpose of including that, at least in part. It's sort of like saying to someone at midnight, hey, look outside. Do you see how dark it is out there? You could easily stumble and get hurt, right? And then when the sun comes up in the morning, you say, now do you see how light it is out there? Do you remember last night when it was pitch black? You see how light it is now. You see how easy it is for you to not trip and hurt yourself? That's the contrast Paul has set up here. And if you've read Paul long enough, again, you know that he loves to do this very thing. Throughout his letters, he uses stark contrasts like this to make his point. And honestly, I think most good teachers do this. I think it's really good practice uh, from a teaching perspective. I mean, think about, you know, think about how you teach a child the difference between hot and cold. What do you do? Well, you let them feel one extreme. So maybe you say, hey, hold this ice cube. That's cold. Okay. And then you let them feel another extreme. You know, maybe something that's been, been sitting in the sun for a while. You see? That's how you would teach a child, I think. Right? Maybe that's why my kids are all messed up. <laughs> right? Just kidding. Right? Um, that's how you would teach a child. Uh, you use extremes, right? Say, so he's hot and he's cold, or he's cold and he's hot. Case in point, after Paul finishes setting up the picture of the advanced unbelievers with this, you know, greed to practice evil, he turns his attention to believers. Look at verse 20. So we just finished on the advanced unbeliever, but then he says, but, but, you, that is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Again, assuming you are a believer, of course, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So you have a huge contrast that Paul sets up for the edification of his readers and us thousands of years later. So we also look at 1 Timothy 4 too, where this uh, word is used to describe uh, a seared conscience. So that was you know, hardness of heart. But also this idea of a seared conscience of the advanced unbeliever. Up here on the board, cauteriazzo in the Greek. You can see the word cauterize right in there. It's where we get it in the English. It means to brand or sear with a red hot iron, figuratively cauterized, which destroys the spiritual nerve endings. I can't tell anymore. Is that hot or cold? Is that good or bad? I, I can't tell. 
My conscience has been seared. My spiritual nerve endings are shot. That's the end goal of that vector that unbelievers are on, that are born on. So we looked at the extreme to understand a believer's perspective. By looking at the natural end of unbelief, that is a human flesh left to its own desires, we're able to give a certain scale, you see, a certain scale to the chasm between an unbeliever and a believer. We now can see the, the vast difference between the two individuals. It's like that comparison between night and day that I just gave you a moment ago, or the difference between hot and cold, or the difference between black and white, love and hate etc. To understand the one, you've got to understand the other. They are necessary poles. Otherwise, you would have no magnitude. Do you understand? If you never knew hot, how would you describe cold? There would be no basis for it. They coexist as polar ends. Uh, Again, to understand one, you've got to understand the other. They're necessary to each other. They're even, if you want to get strict about it, they're intrinsic to one another, in a sense. So it's this concept of comparison for scale that implies this existence of polar ends. Now, just to be silly for a moment, um, what if I said to you, I'm going to teach you about pleasant smells. In that case, it probably wouldn't be me. Just saying. Anyways. Scott, I don't know what you're laughing about, bud. So I'm going to teach you about pleasant smells, right? And I say, the first thing I say is, look at the moon. How beautiful it is tonight. And then I say, now taste this taco. Right? Does the sight of the moon give any scale to the taste of the taco? The smell of it, right? Does it? No. You might say, oh, but it's so romantical, this taco. Right? And it might mean more to you, but you're not gonna, it's not going to taste any different. You, you don't get any scale out of the taste of the smell of the taco because of the moon. That's the point. Was that a bad one or what? Pretty bad. It's bad because it's stupid, right? I'm just trying to teach you, like, what if we didn't do it this way? What if he didn't teach us with polar ends? What if he just said, love, light, good? Okay. You'd say, what does that even mean? Mom, dad, what does that mean? Don't touch that thing, it's hot. I don't know. Well, if your spiritual nerve endings are cauterized, you wouldn't know, would you? You wouldn't know if it was hot or cold. You could melt your fingers off or freeze them to a crisp. Right? You wouldn't know. That's the point. So for us to understand and appreciate the value of a good conscience that God gives us at salvation and then matures over time through sanctification... So in other words, our good conscience gets even sharper. 
We have to understand what it means not to have this gift. To appreciate and understand the gift of a good conscience, uh, we have to understand what it means to not have it. What happens when I don't have a good conscience? What happens when I don't have that God-given gift that's given at salvation? What happens when I'm not a new creature? When I don't have a true north, a new vector? What happens when I don't understand the essence of all of that? When I don't have that, those gifts? All of this is to say that when we read the likes of Proverbs 17.5, or any Holy Scripture for that matter, we believers respond differently in our souls. That's the point. And we're supposed to, and it's a good thing. It may even hurt us more. You might say, oh, well, then we're going to read the Bible, and it's always going to be jolly. Uh Uh-uh. An unbeliever could read something convicting and be like, hmm. And you read it like, oh, no. That's going to hurt. Or it could be just the opposite. It could be phenomenal. Right? An unbeliever says, eternal life? Eh, all right. You read eternal life, you're like, I can't wait. You have hope. Do you? That's what the Spirit's actually saying here. Again, we believers respond differently in our souls. Why? Because we are at a different pole than an unbeliever. We're on a different vector with a different end point in view. And it gives us an entirely new and different perspective. And it affects us even. I use the word viscerally. right? And it's appropriate because it involves nerves. Um, it, it, it affects us viscerally even in a way that an unbeliever will never be affected. They just don't have the apparatus for it. To a true believer in Christ, this verse leaves a really bad taste in our mouths. Proverbs 17.5. Leaves a, a, an awful taste in our mouths. Right? I mean, why? Because we realize, and this is the crux of this morning's message, by the way, we realize how offensive it is to God. Not even the poor person who's getting picked on or scoffed at or mocked. But how offensive that is to God. An unbeliever doesn't have that response, you see? They're like, God schmod. You fall? We're like, whoa, this is offensive to my, my Lord. So we realize how offensive it is to God. An unbeliever might say by comparison, you know, oh, that's just awful how some people treat others. It's wrong. And they may be all up in arms even, right? Based on even just their worldly scale of values. And we might, you know, we might rightly agree with that sentiment. But the bigger pain for us is to understand how repulsive and offensive such a thing is to the maker. That's our great pain. That's the pain we carry with us. Go to Proverbs 17.5. You still, no, you got to go back there, right? Proverbs 17.5. 
That's our pain. Our pain is not for the poor. Do we have a certain um, affection for the poor or, uh, you know, sympathy for the poor? Sure. Can we do something about it? Sure. But that's not the great offense here. The great offense here is to what? Whoa, did you see how I did that? I mean, it's hardened plastic. It's ripped right through that. Right? Our biggest pain is towards the maker. That some creature has the audacity to take that kind of a stance against his creation. Who are you? That's our problem with it. Even an unbeliever can say, oh, that's wrong. On some moral set of standards. But to us, it's deeper. Verse 5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Again, the believer, as opposed to the advanced unbeliever, who could care less about God's thoughts or desires, a believer is upset that God is offended most of all. That's what bothers a believer the most. And, of course, there's a continuum like, I don't know, I'm kind of a believer, it doesn't bother me that much. Well, maybe you're on the immature side of things. You, too, are on a vector, as I mentioned at the start of class, right? We are sanctified. The more we're sanctified, the more something like this pops out right off the page. I said, man, that is ugly. That's awful. To God! We move beyond traditional worldly thinking into the perspective of God, to divine perspective, we would call it. And that's where it really gets, you know heavy, meaty. So a believer is upset that God is offended most of all. In fact, we see this reality in David's response to his adulterous, murderous affair with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. Now think about this. <clears throat> David wasn't just an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was a murderer. He murdered someone's husband, someone's father, someone's uncle, someone's friend. He murdered someone that meant probably a lot to other people even. He hurt a lot of people by taking that person, Uriah, out of the equation. Pretty bad, right? I mean, he sinned against a lot of people, in other words. A lot of people because he was being a selfish jerk at the time. And yet, where was his greatest despair? Go to Psalm 51.1. Where was David's greatest despair? Psalm 51, verse 1. All of that. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. A murderer. Took someone's 
husband, father, friend, uncle, you name it, uh, co-worker, I don't know. He, he left a vacuum in a lot of people's lives. But look at how he responds, how he refers to that incident or that situation. Psalm 51.1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4, you ready? Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So he's an adulterous murderer, and he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I just talked about that theologically, right? We're all born depraved, and that's the vector. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. In other words, David was crushed and pressed really low. But in what sense? What was the, the reason? He offended God. He knew what his sins were. He knew he was an adulterous murderer. He knew he was offensive to God. In other words, everything else, that one truth was like a blaring light. Do you follow? It's almost like, you know, if, if, if you all hold up lighters right now, right? I know sometimes you want to do that like, you know, oh, that's good. Right? And then someone comes in, John Godner decides, you know what, I'm just going to put everybody else to shame. I'm coming in with a football light that I ripped off from Gillette Stadium because they're not there anyways, right? And he's got a generator, he's going, what can I see? I see John's light. I don't see any of your light. Your light still exists? Yeah, I know they exist. But all I can see is that overwhelmingly bright light. That's David. He's like, yep, I'm an adulterous murderer. But what bothers me the most is not how I offended those people. It's how I offended you, Lord. And that's why he's pleading with God this way. Verse 13. Do this for me, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, you ready? Are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I remember when I was teaching the gospel reload, this was 
one of the passages that the Spirit brought us to on the topic of repentance. Again, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, I can repent from this. I know it, Lord. I know that you're merciful and gracious, Lord. I know that you love me, Lord. I can repent from this. I confess it now. His problem was with God. He was broken because of the distance he put between himself and God in this way. Now, keep David's response and his contrite heart, his remorse regarding his awful sinning in mind as we go back to our primary passes. Now take that, David's heart. Now go back to Proverbs 17, 5. Because the Spirit is going to use that to help drive this point home. Verse 5, whoever mocks the poor, insults his maker, he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. And we're going to focus there for a moment. Remember David. Was he being hurt? Was he being pressed low? Was he hurting? Yeah. Yeah. You know what we call that? Punishment. David was at his wit's end. Anybody ever been there? I have. Anybody ever been so worn out that you're literally like depressed, you do not even feel like getting out of bed? I have. Happens to me almost like cyclically every so often. It happens, I'm like, man, I just don't even feel like getting out of bed right now. I'm pressed low. So I pray, and God says, hey, are you ready to confess that thing yet? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, crap. We're there again? Yeah, that's why you're depressed. But it doesn't all add. Oh, trust me, that's why. Trust me, it's because you're living in sin over here and you, you think nobody's watching. You think I'm not watching. Or you, you got this persistent thought pattern in your soul and you won't let it go. And you think I'm not paying attention. And you think that I didn't equip you to reject that. To almost want to... Your new creature wants to vomit it out. Wants to rid itself. Ex magnesium citrate. Did I say that? Citrate? Oh, I got mixed. What is it? Citrate? Who's a medical person? Where's Joey? Yeah, I'm just going to take citrate. I want to... This is getting gross. I just want to get rid of that. I want to, like, purge myself. <laughs> Moving right along, talking too much about my procedure. There's nothing holy here. Pastor, is anything like, like, have you heard TMI? Apparently not. So imagine me on drugs. Poor nurses. Whoever mocks the poor, insults his maker, he who is glad at calamity, will not go unpunished. David was crushed because he, had, because he had a good conscience. So first, as the Spirit's been emphasizing this morning, the true believer in Christ will be viscerally affected 
by the thought of this kind of sin against God. But not only that, like we just noted with David, we understand this sin to be the most prevalent against God. And it doesn't have to be a a grave sin like murder, just sin. That sin is horrifically offensive to God. Now, reflect on this for a moment. If someone, say someone lies to you and you end up hurt, who's more offended? You or God? Who's more offended by that sin? You, the receiver of it, or God? The better question is who's got more of a right to be offended? A flawed creature or the holy God of the universe? You might say to that person, hey, that was really bad, you know? Well, I'm kind of a liar, but you're a really bad liar. So there's a scale to how bad it is to you. But what happens if you're perfectly holy? Infinitely that way, sin. You see the difference in the size of the offense? Yeah. So the right question is, who has the... Who has more of a right to be offended? What's the bigger scale? Let me put this in more concrete terms. We can't even grasp the magnitude of offensiveness a sin is to God. We can't even grasp it because we aren't perfectly holy. We, we, we're not infinitely holy. So we, don't, we can't look back from that vantage point and say, whew, that's a long distance. We can only do this. And we can imagine a little bit further. Say, oh, it must be really bad for God. No, you you don't have it. That's the point. We can't even grasp the magnitude of offensiveness a sin is to God because we're not perfectly holy. A sin to God, and this is not even adequate, a sin to God is like physically sitting on the sun as opposed to on a beach here on earth and feeling the sun. I'm going to be gross. Some of you don't feel like it. Block your ears. A sin to God is like eating dog poop (laughs) as opposed to just smelling it. I got this little problem, I guess, with poop this morning. (laughs) Have something to do with tomorrow. Just bitter. A sin to God is like being punched in the face by Mike Tyson as opposed to being tapped by a baby. You get the point. You get the point. We simply cannot even grasp how offensive sin is to God. We just can't. Knowing this, knowing that it's beyond our, even beyond human comprehension even, like we feel, we might be like, oh, that's that's horrible. It's definitely worse than... This, it's, I can't even imagine it, right? Knowing this brings us great discomfort. Knowing we can't even put a, a marker on it. It brings us great discomfort because with this new heart and this good conscience that we've been given at salvation, sin is visceral to us. Why? 
because we know that it's infinitely offensive to our Creator, our Maker, to use Proverbs 17, 5 language. It's infinitely offensive to Him. So concentrate here. Do you see what sin is to a true believer with a good conscience in Christ? It's not about what it does to others, strictly speaking. It's about what it does to God. It's, it's about what it is to God. Now, as a side note, I don't want people being like, hey, I don't have to even apologize to other people. You know. God still desires for us to ask for forgiveness from others who we've offended. Up here on the board, James 5.16 Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Is it good to keep the peace with others? You bet. It keeps things from getting out of hand. Up here on the board, Romans 12:18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So it's a good thing to keep the peace. So don't be, you know, don't say, well, I'm like David. I just do whatever I want. To hell with everybody else, I just confess it to God. Don't do that either. Because the Bible is uh, quite clear on peaceful relations with other people. Again, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. All right, so let's take a step back now and begin piecing together what the Spirit's been getting at here this morning. As I mentioned earlier, as our true mentor and teacher, the Spirit has been using that pedagogical technique, that teaching technique of polar comparisons. I'm going to give you both for the sake of scale, right? He's been using polar comparisons to add scale to the concept of offensiveness to God. At the beginning of this message, he gave us insight into the end game of the advancing unbeliever. That's the dark pole. Look at where they're going. You see that? With, with acceleration. They're going away from God. That's further into the darkness. And we saw how that ends in Romans 1. We saw what that looks like. They even start patting themselves on the back. That's, the, that's that pole, the dark polar end. And then he gave us a glimpse into the heart of David, who God proffers. That's a legal term, right? A man after his own heart. He sets him up. He states that David's a man after his own heart. So he gives us another poll. He said, this is what it looks like when you go towards me. I know you're not perfect, David. Murder? I know you're not perfect, but he keeps going in that direction. And if he veers off course, what we just read in Psalm 51, it's awful. So he corrects us, he course corrects us so that we keep going in that direction. That's that pole. 
David was a man after his own heart. So we can sort of, you know, pull the shoestrings tight here. Just by pausing and thinking about this one statement. Let's do that now. Go to Acts 13.22. I want to just do this thing before we partake in the Lord's Supper. Acts 13.22. So we take some pause. Acts 13.22. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. How's that? How's that to have the holy God of the universe say that about you? I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Up here on the board, a man after my heart. David owns this designation because he was humble and repentant, knowing his sins were preeminently against the holy, sovereign, righteous God of the universe. His life was a confession, a testimony, a witness. He was a living testimony of a contrite heart. Of, he was a witness to that person on this vector. Again, David owns this designation because he was humble and repentant, knowing his sins were preeminently against the holy, sovereign, righteous God of the universe. His life was a confession, a testimony, a witness. In other words, David received this incredible designation because he was occupied with God's thoughts, not man's. He was preeminently occupied with God's thoughts, not man's. That's how he is a man after God's heart, who will ultimately do his will. It doesn't mean that he was dismissive of his sins against others. Rather, the offensiveness of his sin to God was blaring to him, you know? Blaring more in, say, the audiophile section of you, right? I mean, if I stop whispering to you, if you've got a little Walkman on, let's say, and you've got this message replaying, because I know all of you do that, right? Because, you, you know... And, you know, all of a sudden, you're in the back seat of someone's car on a long trip, let's say, or something, or the front seat. And all of a sudden, they just take the radio, 94HCY, whoop, just blaring music. You can no longer hear my voice, right? That's what David describes, or why David is described this way. Because God is blaring. God's thoughts... Uh, are blaring to him. And when he's disjoint, when someone like David is disjoint with the holy sovereign God of the universe, it's a blaring issue. Nothing else matters at that point. No other sound matters at that point. That point. I only hear God. This is God's like, hey, you know, like loud. It's all I can hear right now is this blaring issue with my Lord, my 
Savior. Do we forget that he saved us? Is it, shouldn't that just be enough every time we think about it? Do, are we that uh, familiar with salvation itself? Where we can drown him out? Where we go like this, we take the volume knob on God and go, womp, 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 womp. Are we that familiar? Maybe, at times. But David wasn't dismissive of his sins against others. It's just the offensiveness of his sin to God was blaring to him. In the same way, if Jesus were to show up right now, we'd all be blinded by his radiance to the point that we wouldn't see anyone else in this room Figuratively speaking, right? You would just focus on him. Everybody else would just fade to black, right? If you really were convinced it was Jesus Christ, you wouldn't do anything but probably run up and kiss his feet. And nobody else would even exist, except maybe the person you just climbed over. Not that you would do that. (laughs) That's goodness. To see Jesus that way, that's amazing. He'd just be, this is the light of the world. All I can see is him right now. The same goes for sin. It is so utterly offensive, utterly opposed to God, therefore offensive to God, that when someone's thinking like David's is after God's heart, the sin against God takes center stage. It's blaring. It's glaring. It's all you can see. It's blinding. That's all you can see. It's the same integrity, in other words. Whether it's for good or for evil, it's blinding. Do you follow? Because it's of God. And something as uh, antagonistic to God as sin is just center stage, making all other sins against others, you know, other humans, fade away into the background. That's why we read Psalm 51. It was to drive that point home. Again, up here on the board, A man after my heart, David owns this designation because he was humble and repentant, knowing his sins were preeminently against the holy, sovereign, righteous God of the universe. His life was a confession, a testimony, a witness. Now, let's bring this back to us here in 2020. While we're perched on this one verse on Holy Scripture, go to Proverbs 17.5. Bring that back to Proverbs 17.5. reads, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Now, let's assume our hearts are oriented with God right now, say, on the, you know, close to David in that, on that vector, you know, in that realm. And I, I truly hope they are. What say you of this punishment? What say you of this punishment? Let's suppose that you are the sinner for the moment. Let's say that you're the sinner. Is the sin in view so repulsive to you that you respond the way David did? Will you, or will the sin cause you to confess it and repent? Or will your flesh rule the day? Will your flesh persist in its quest to, I don't know, be better? 
to establish itself as dominant. What the Spirit has been teaching us is simple up here on the board. A believer's good conscience will not allow them to rejoice in sin. That's what he's been teaching us. One end of the pole, they don't just, they, they don't just rejoice in it. They slap each other on the back and they have parties over and they, they, they greedily practice it. We're on this vector. This one, No. We're not, and if we veer off course, David is an extreme example, and we read about it in Psalm 51. If we veer off course, we get course corrected. And course correction hurts. And we suffer. We're punished for it. And God uses our good conscience to do it. He doesn't need to physically come down here and smack you upside the head. He's got everything he needs inside of you with the new creature. It's called a good conscience. He convicts you. And when you learn the Word of God, you get more of that, which is why you're called sanctified. Which means you're able to course correct a lot faster than you were when you're young. You know, if you look at it, it's like a, um, what do they call it? A diminishing, uh, I don't want to get into that. But you ever see like a, how a wave would go? Hmm. You know what I mean? It's like that. If you follow that vector, you're like that wave. It's like, whoa, whoa. When you're young, you're like, whoo, whoo. And you get old and it's kind of like, right? Dampening sine wave, we call it. All this physics. That's what happens. The more mature you get, the quicker the course corrections. doesn't mean you don't sin. It's just you don't spend forever in those sins. You course correct, which is what makes you mature, which is why if you look at a mature person in the faith, this is what they're like. Right? They don't have those, you know, those emotional highs and lows like they used to when they were younger in the faith. They're very level. And that's part of, wouldn't, wouldn't you describe that as peace? If you think of a water analogy, I mean, if you're out in the ocean, it's like this. Not so peaceful. Right? How would you describe peace on, on water? That's a mature believer. And that's that vector extended out. Jesus was like, whew, which was really awesome. But a believer's good conscience will not allow them to rejoice in sin. End of story. Here's the ugliness, though, of the human flesh up here on the board. Again, I'm just wrapping up now. These are all points of review. It just says I'm better. I just want to be better. When the human flesh claims victory, it is an affront to the holy sovereign of the universe because said victory implies that it is over God. Therefore, if you're proclaiming a victory over God, it becomes your judgment. Therefore, the, right, the punishment is righteous. Whatever pain you feel, especially as a believer, whatever pain you experience, it's a result of that judgment. That disorientation to God becomes your judgment, becomes the reason for your punishment. So if you're a believer who's got Holy Scripture under your belt, then you will be convicted by it. That's the way it goes up here on the board. Therefore, the value of truth, the word of truth is a double-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. If you're oriented to God, you are blessed with peace. Ah. If not, you are cursed with unrest. Do you see how the word works in us? And by the way, up here on the board, we saw this on Thursday, the word of truth is the final say on all things. 
In other words, it's our point of orientation. You say, well, what about that vector? How do I know I'm veering off the vector? The word of truth. How do I know when I'm like, woo, right here? How do I know when I'm right here? That's the point. This is, this, is, this is how you orient. You learn the word of God so that you can orient, so you can get out there at some point in the future, sanctified to some greater degree, so you can sleep at night. How's that? So you're like, right? So you can sleep at night. Who doesn't want to sleep at night? Right? The person, the person I'm describing is the one who can go to bed at night no matter what's going on and get a good night's sleep. The, the analog is Jesus in the bow of the ship. Whoa! Everybody's like, oh my God! Jesus is like, what? And what did he call out? Faith. Because at the end of that vector is a greater faith. This is why the apostles, increase our faith. That's what they prayed for. Increase our faith. I want to be on the calm sea. This is scary. This is not. Jesus, you seem to have something we don't have. Can I have some of that? Sure. Learn this. In, in that day, he was like, listen to what I'm telling you, which is the same as this, right? But we have this, the completed canon. Learn that. You, wanna, you want calm seas? You want easy sailing? Learn the word of God. The word of truth is the final say in all things. It's the word of truth that will either encourage us or discourage us from persisting with certain thoughts or behaviors. It's the word of truth that fuels our discernment by convicting our good conscience of right or wrong. It's the word of truth that has always been that point of division between light and darkness, truth and lies, good and evil. Now, before we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, um, let's just remember that the Spirit has, well, what the Spirit has authored uh, in the past couple of weeks, blogs even. I hope you never miss how perfect his curriculum is. Uh, back in, uh, not this week, but the week before, up here on the board, it was titled uh, September 25th, Scripture Cannot Be Broken. In other words, mm. you know what I'm saying? I'm bitter about tomorrow. <laughs> Why? I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? Mm. Scripture cannot be broken. You want, you want that sense of assurance? You want conviction in your life? You want purpose? You want something to fight for? Learn the word of God. The rest of it's garbage. Everybody's talking about fighting for this and social justice warriors, and they're not warriors, they're ridiculous. They're not fight. What are they fighting for? Creature credit, worldly stuff. I'm saying some of the stuff's not correct, I'm just saying. Wrong vector. Scripture cannot be broken. In other words, it is the word of truth that stands as our source of all truth. We don't need to go any further than our Bibles to find this truth. So the blog talked about, or this week's blog talked about the ultimate goal of understanding said word of truth. Love. You say, well, what do I get out of this? You know, what do I get out of this? Well, 
To me, there's nothing more um, gravitating, nothing more assuring, nothing more firm than love. Nothing. I can know this and not be delivered by it. I can do stuff in this Bible and never really know love and therefore be insecure. What is it that you're seeking security for? Is it, well, I want to be a nerd about the Bible. Hmm. Is that really going to cut it? Or do you want to know love? If given the option, I can say, listen, if God came down right now, I'll give you supreme knowledge of this thing. I will impart not just the English version, but I'll, I'll impart all the original language to you right now. Perfect. You'll be able to, anybody go, hey, Psalm 51.7. You'll know it cold. You can recite it end to end. Or I'll give you love. Which one do you want? I know which one I'll pick. Hmm. Love. The Spirit, as he's been doing from his pulpit, also, as of late, is saying, if it's love, then fight for it. Fight for it. Fight the good fight, as Paul would say. Fight for your right to peace and contentment. Fight for others who are weaker than you along the way. Especially those of the faith. That's why he had me write this week's blog up here on the board titled, The Battle for Love. The Battle for Love. So let's just close with a recap of Thursday's Closing thought, go to John 13.34. John 13.34. John 13, verse 34. Fight for it. Fight for love. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. This is Jesus. And he said it as a commandment. Right? Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He doesn't say like the Pharisees would say at the time. Oh, you know that I'm of God because I know all this scripture. And the more scripture I know, the more of God I am. That was their religious vector. He said, no. Nope. Nope. Do you remember who he actually said every time the gospel is going to be preached, I want this person to be mentioned? Was it the person who knew the most scripture? No. It was the woman at his feet. Kissing his feet. Think about that. By all this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As this week's blog opened up, 
quote, Is there a greater blessing than to love and be loved? And it ended with, I don't believe so. That's all I want to know. I just want to know God's love for me. And I'm not saying I'm David, but anytime I offend that person in my life, above all others, I'm hurt. I just want to know and abide in the sphere of God's love. And when I eject myself from that love, and I know that I've become offensive to the one who invited me into that sphere, it hurts a lot. The sin is blaring, glaring, blinding. To love God is to abide in the sphere of his love which includes, of course, his perfect righteousness, which means to accept his perfect judgments, whether for blessing or punishment, as we've been noting. In the end, it means to seek to be as David was, a man or a woman after God's heart. It means to enjoy the intrinsic goodness of being in the presence of the holy God of the universe. It means to love for God's sake, as well as your own, and to be grateful for everything he's done for you by grace. Amen? All right, let's get the elements out. We're going to celebrate communion service. Scott's going to lead us through. Okay, Pastor, thank you very much for the privilege of uh, standing behind this pulpit and sharing about the Lord's Supper. Today, um, we're going to talk about peace, believe it or not, as the message ended. 
but in particular, we're talking about peace with God. And it's funny how the Spirit works, isn't it? Um, I didn't know what Pastor was teaching about this morning, and he didn't know what I was going to say about communion. But talking about polar opposites, one of the great disparities between a true believer and an unbeliever is peace with God. They couldn't be further apart, unfortunately. We're all born in sin and at enmity with God, enemies. And when we come to realize that truth as an individual, we then cry out to Jesus to be saved. Why? Because we realized in some way that we were at odds with God. And any humble conscience knows that's not a good thing, a scary thing, in fact. So you repented towards God, if you're a believer, and you sought out Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And whether you understood it then or not, it was so you could be reconciled to God. So that you could be brought to peace with your maker and creator. No more at odds. Only through the blood of Christ can a man find peace with his creator. It's impossible otherwise. Because Jesus was the only worthy sacrifice for the sins of man. It's so simple, isn't it? So the true believer gets to enjoy peace with God. Because the Bible says he is now at peace with God. Something Jesus accomplished for us, right? Not something we can manufacture or convince ourselves of from the flesh. The true believer gets to enjoy peace with God because the Bible says he is now at peace with God because of Christ. Knowing that is priceless, is it not? Knowing that he's forgiven you of all your sins is priceless, is of no comparison. And that's where we have peace. As we started this morning in John 6.37, Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Because he established peace between our sinful creature and the holy God of the universe. So the Lord reconciled us to God. That's what reconciled means. The Lord brought us to peace with God through the cross. Through him we have that peace that we can actually rest on because God is faithful. So what does Holy Scripture say about this? If you want, you can turn to a couple of passages with me. You don't have to if you'd rather not uh, spill your, your uh, cup. But be careful if you want to turn to Romans 5.1. I'm just going to read a couple passages about this reconciliation that he purchased for us with his perfect blood. Otherwise, we could not be reconciled. We could not have peace with a holy God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating right now. That's what the communion table is all about. What he did, he fought for us. He fought the ultimate fight and won 
And it is finished. Thank God. And now, we who turn to Him, we're justified by faith, and we have peace with God through Him. And Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Reconciliation, brought to peace with the Almighty, the Holy One. And then one other verse to go to is Colossians 1, 19. Colossians 1, 19. Without, without Jesus, there's no peace with God. It's an impossibility for sinful man. Colossians 1.19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, talking about Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do we get familiar with that? That he did the impossible for us? As this week's blog stated in the battle for love, uh, just a, a small snippet, it said, there's no greater peace found on earth than in the sphere of love. To know that we're in God's sphere of love forever because of the peace he, he purchased us with his own blood, is there anything greater than that? Is there any greater peace than to know you're loved? perfectly by the perfect one who cannot renege whose love never fails and we believers are in that sphere of love we don't always experience experience it in this world and that's why it's a battle to stay there experientially in this life but we have been granted peace by our creator through Christ who loves us so dearly and we can have peace every day because we're in the sphere of God's love. He rescued us and delivered us from certain judgment. He made peace with the mighty king of the universe for us. And that's why the Bible tells us not to look towards earthly things for peace and happiness. Even eating and drinking can be looked at improperly and given too much emphasis in our lives. Is that where we derive peace from? The things of the world? Well, true peace only comes through knowing Christ. Knowing what he did for you. As our Lord said in John 4, his food was to do the will of the one who sent him. And it can be our food, our sustenance, our energy, our satisfaction to do the will of the one who sent us. In Romans 14, it says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's where peace is. This communion table is the eating and drinking that truly gives us peace and joy because of its meaning, because we remember him the perfect one, the holy one, the one who fought for us. 
to a, a bitter end on a, on a cross. The only one worthy of praise and glorification. He suffered so we wouldn't have to suffer. He purchased our peace with his blood. It's amazing how we get familiar, isn't it? But these little reminders, maybe that's why the Lord said, celebrate this on a regular basis, this communion table, the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to start a little bit earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, just to give you some context. We already talked about eating and drinking. And you don't have to turn there if you don't want, but we're going to celebrate communion right now. It says in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together... It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then Paul gets into what we should be doing. In verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of our Lord, let's eat the bread. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We apologize for forgetting about you, for not always remembering what you've done for us. We come to you with humble hearts, and we ask you for your help to increase our faith even, and our hope, and our love. We thank you, Father, so much for your faithfulness, for the steadfastness of your love, that never fails. And we thank you for adopting us and bringing us to eternal peace with you through the blood of your precious Son. Father, we ask that you help us spread this good news out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately, Father. We thank you for your mercy. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, and by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen.